So what do fictional characters, and I'll give you three of them, Sherlock Holmes, Captain Hook, and James Bond, what do they all have in common? Well, this isn't a trick question, nor is it a very deep theological question. These fictional characters are, by all literary scholars, classified as what are called static characters, meaning that when a story starts, these three characters will not change at all. The Sherlock at the beginning of the story is the same as the Sherlock at the end of the story. Okay, now we're talking about the books, not the television shows and so on. So understand that these characters, they just don't change. Sherlock is the same at the beginning, at the end, and the middle. Same thing with Captain Hook, right? He's still scared of the alligator. He still has the hook for a hand. James Bond, well, he's a hot mess. Now we compare those to some other characters, such as Ebenezer Scrooge, Anakin Skywalker, or Scout from To Kill a Mockingbird. And when we think about these two groups, they're vastly different, aren't they? Scout from To Kill a Mockingbird goes from someone who hates people that are different, is very suspect of what's going on in her world, to somebody who has a much bigger view of the world. Anakin Skywalker. I mean, his story of falling and then redemption is the entirety of the Star Wars saga, at least the good parts. And then Ebenezer Scrooge. Can we think of a better story of someone who understands what life should be all about? Now, he didn't go far enough. He didn't get to Jesus, but he came pretty close. These are what are called dynamic characters. These are characters that drive the action. These are the ones that push the story along. And so for the next four weeks, we are going to be looking at our spiritual dynamic. We're going to look at what being a follower of Christ should look like. The word dynamic means characterized by change, activity, and progress. Growth is probably how we would say it as Christians. So this topic is, is important to us because we are looking at who we are as followers of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, if you're here and you are not one of the believers, of the people who know Jesus, this is an opportunity for you to see what it's all about. And I think for a lot of us, this will be an opportunity for us to really reorient where we're supposed to be. So when we think of the gospel, this is now, since I've been the pastor here, this is, I think, our fourth gospel-focused topic. When we think of the gospel, many of us think of a word added on to it, gospel music, gospel-centered, gospel worship. But the gospel is actually the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it must be. According to God's word, it must be the center of all that we do, not just in this room, but everywhere we go. See, when we think about the gospel, we think of it as kind of this one-time thing. Like, I believed it, so now I'm a part of the team, I've got my, my, my ticket, I'm good. The Bible actually says very different than that. For many of us, our first encounter with the gospel, or the one maybe that we remember, is when we prayed a prayer, accepting Christ as our Lord. Maybe we walked an aisle. Maybe it was in this room. Maybe it was at a youth activity. Maybe it was, like my own story, in my sister's bedroom after reading the Bible with my mom. Maybe that's 
what we think about the gospel. That's when we were saved. The Bible does agree that that is a part of the gospel. But it also says there is a whole lot more. See, when we look at the gospel, we need to understand it's not a small gospel, but it's a gigantic gospel. It's a gospel that angels in heaven, these supreme beings, long to look at and see in our lives. With all the things the angels could be looking at, that they want to look at that is pretty impressive. Now, for most of us, when we chose to give our lives to Christ, it was probably because we wanted to not go to hell. Let's be honest. That's where a lot of us started. Now, that's what I said, started. Not that's where we stayed. But that's where a lot of us started. Now, maybe some of us, we became believers because of a sin in our life, and we had a sin problem, and we needed help, and we knew the only way to save it was Jesus stepping in. For others, maybe the Lord got a hold of your heart with something and pulled you to him and you got down on your knees and confessed your sins. Each of us is at different places and had different starts. But here's the thing. We all need to get to where we're at the same place with the gospel being our life. And so today, as we start this spiritual dynamic journey, the first thing we must see is that the gospel is at the dead center of everything we do. It's not just the way we get on the bus headed to heaven. It's not just the way we join the God team. It's not just the way we get the special ticket, like Willy Wonka. It is the start of that, but it is so, so much more. And actually, it's not even the best part. Getting out of going to hell is not the best part of being a Christian. The best part of being a Christian is that we have a relationship with God. And that relationship starts now and will extend on into eternity. See, this idea of us being saved and our tickets punched and then we don't have any other relationship with God is not biblical. That's kind of what we think, though, isn't it? I mean, that's what I thought when I was a kid. It had nothing to do with the teaching and the church I went to. I just didn't get it. We're like a car driving down McLaughlin, right? You guys have been driving down McLaughlin and it gets really rainy. You're down there by the Walmart. And all of a sudden, your car goes into a rut, and you're like stuck, and you're hydroplaning. We do the same thing all the time. We get right back into the rut of, you know what? God saved me, but I've got to do. I've got to earn. I've got to make sure God knows he did a good job picking me. As if God was picking us for dodgeball in PE. Right? I want to show him, you should, yeah, you used a good pick on me. But in actuality, that's not the way it works. We are not called to be a Christian and then go and figure out how to do it all on our own. We are not to work it on our own. We are to tap into God's strength to do it. Let me show you an example of how this is wrong. Mormons, they're a Christian offshoot, a cult of Christianity. They believe a bunch of things that are not biblical. One of the things they believe is from the Book of Mormon. It says, for we know that we are saved by grace after all we have done. See, what the Mormons have done there is they've said, you have to do this much to earn God's grace, and then he'll fill in whatever's lacking. See, we do a version of that, don't we? We go, God's going to save us, but i got to do everything else in my own strength. I have to try to live all this out. And we all know, as these demands of Jesus are listed, we go, hey, there ain't no way I'm able to do that. So we go, well, I'm going to fail, but good news, God will take me back. And we just, this cycle of over and over again, just falling and falling and falling. And we go, this, I guess, is what it is to be a Christian. We're saved, my ticket's punched, but 
The rest of life, you just kind of muddle through it. That is not what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, it is on the border between gospel and heresy. It's on the border between gospel and false teaching if you think you are going to earn your way to heaven. If you think you contribute anything to salvation other than the sins that need to be forgiven. That's what we bring. We bring nothing. Empty to the cross. Empty to the cross I come. He, he, we cling to the cross. I messed up the lyrics on that. I do it all the time. We, we cannot bring anything with us. There is nothing that will make us right to God. So we need to get the full gospel. So the first question we're going to deal with today is, what is the gospel? Now, many people, when you say what is the gospel, they'll say there's those first four books of the New Testament. And you're right. Those are called gospels. That's a title. <laughs> But the word gospel means good news. It means the thing that you need to know. And the Bible speaks to the gospel all the way through. But luckily for us, the Apostle Paul explained it. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Gentile. So right there we see Paul. He defines gospel. It's the power of God. That word power in the Greek is dynamis, which is where we get dynamite. This is the explosive power of God. It is the power. Now, he, he uses this word for at the start of his, of his sentence. The word for in the Bible is a cool word. It's a word that means this is a grounding. So earlier, Paul says, I can't wait to come to Rome. I want to teach about the gospel. And then this for is because, because of this, what I'm about to say this will explain what comes next. And we'll see this in this passage. This fours add on. So the first thing Paul says is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's kind of a weird, weird phrase, right? Ashamed of the gospel. What does this mean? Well, for Paul, it means it's not something that's hidden. It's not something that he puts on a shelf and kind of keeps out of the way to make dinner conversations not awkward. It's not something he hides in a back room. It's not something he puts under the stairs so that the neighbors don't know that that's, that's there. Instead, it's out on display. Think about the thing in your, in your house that you're most proud of. Think about the thing that when someone comes over, you want it on display. This is what Paul is saying. He says, I am putting the gospel on display. It needs to be right out there, out in front. Well, that's kind of an interesting way to start it, Paul. What, what, what does this mean? And then we get another four. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for, or because of, what? It's the power of God. He says, I can't be ashamed of it because it's the power of God. It's God's power on display. And then we get another four. Why? Why is it God's power on display? Because he saves everyone who believes. Everyone. All who believe. There will not be a single one who believes that will not be saved. Look at that power there. What a simple phrase, but yet incredibly complex. 1 John 1.9 gives us a, a, a bigger explanation of this salvation. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this salvation that Jesus, or Paul's talking about, that Jesus brought to us is forgiveness of sins. Yes, sins are not held against me. 
then it's also the cleansing of what led to those sins. See how one is a done and the other one is a continuation. We call that justification and sanctification. And this is what salvation is. So then I guess the question is, when we look at Romans 1, it says, this salvation goes to everyone who believes. What does it mean to believe? This is our second question we're going to address. What does it mean to believe the gospel? Well, we're going to turn to Colossians, and this is where we're going to spend a bulk of our time. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, we read from the ESV, the English Standard Version. It's a very good version. It's literal. But every version kind of brings out a little bit different. So I want to read to you from the NASB, which is also another literal translation. It's a little harder to read at times. But in this, it gets the kind of the, the spirit of what's going here a little bit better. So here's what it says. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And you're going, wait a second, I don't see the difference. Let me show you the difference here. The difference is, is that there are two tenses in this passage. One is past tense. Is that me, Andy, or do I need to fix that? Am I connected? All right. They're bringing me another one. I just thought the Lord was emphasizing what I was saying with those. Got me okay there, Andy? All right. Let's give a hand to our tech crew. All right, look at that. Full service. Hey, guys, this front row would like coffees. Could you guys go get some of those? All right, let's get back to God's word because it's way better than my humor. So the past, there's, there's three past tense like sections here. It says, you have received. You have been firmly rooted and just as you were instructed. So there is a past tense event that has happened. And then we see there is a present tense, future tense. So walk in him. Now being built up. Established in the faith. Like establishing in the faith. And then overflowing with gratitude. See, just this verse alone shows us that being a Christian is not a one and done thing. It's not a, I did it, now I'm done. It's a, I did it, and now there's continuation from it. Charles Spurgeon talked about this, receiving Christ. He said, it is not said, as you have fought and won Jesus, or that you've studied and discovered Jesus, but that you've received Jesus. So the very start of this is grace. God goes, here, Jesus, he's yours. That's the start. And then from there, we get the being built up, the walking, establishing, and overflowing with gratitude. Jesus is their Lord. The Colossians have said, Jesus, you are our Lord. This is the same experience for all of us. No matter how we came to Christ, whether it was we came out of some other religion, or we were baby little human beings, five, six years old, and we confessed Christ, or if we're like the thief on the cross, the moment he 
Before he breathes his last, he asks God to save him. And all the in-between, all of us received Christ. All of us were given Christ. We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't discover it. We didn't solve the riddle of the universe. All of it is the Spirit working on us and dragging us to him. So then we see another awkward phrase, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. What this is saying, what Paul is saying here is he's saying how you received Jesus at the beginning, this is the way we're to walk with him continually. Now again, all of us, different ages, different understandings, but what is key is that when our salvation becomes ours and ours alone, we see how wretched we are and we see how great he is. And how, like I said, all we bring is the sins he's going to forgive. And his grace is flowing. His mercy is flowing. This is the perspective. This is the stance that we are to be in as we walk as believers. Now, about you guys, I, I mentioned a minute ago, I became a believer. I confessed Jesus as my Lord and Savior when I was about five years old. In my sister's bedroom, right by her canopy bed, after reading a children's Bible with my mom and sister. Now, at that moment, did I understand all of the things I needed to know to be a believer? No. Was I saved? I believe so. I believe the Lord saved me at that point. But over time and many years and banging my heads against legalism and thinking I could do whatever I want, I got to the point where I cried out to the Lord and I saw my sins as repulsive. And I said, Lord, this cannot keep going. Please take away my sins. I don't know what I was in that in-between. But I do know that God is faithful, and I do know that God saves when we cry out to him. So what does this cry look like? What is this universal thing that we're all to have experienced? It's to cry out to the Lord and go, Lord, I can't solve my sin problem. I can't fix the gulf between me and you. I need help. Just those simple words, Lord, I need help. I need your salvation. I need you. It's humility. It's desperation. It's saying, Lord, I can't do this. I need your help. That's the position we are in when we become a believer, when we become a Christian, when we become adopted into God's family. So if you're here today and you've had the five-year-old birthday, five-year-old bedroom experience, right? If you've had that and you've had nothing since then, this is the moment where you need to go, I can't do this, Lord. I cannot save myself. And a prayer that I prayed back there that did nothing to me from then, praise be to God that you're still here and you're alive because you can confess now. Jesus Christ can be your Lord and Savior now. Confess that you can't save yourself. You can't do it. There's nothing worse than sitting in a room full of believers thinking you're one of them because you said something a long time ago. Where are you with your walk today? Have you received Christ? Make that profession of faith. Look at how we do it. It's really simple. 1 John 1.9 says, confess your sins. That's it. Confess your sins. A part of this asking for help is saying, I've tried to do it myself. Lord, I can't do it. I need your help. Confess that you can't do it. I can't save myself. All I can do is mess it up even worse. Lord, I need your help. See, as believers, we're to be repenting people. We're to be constantly repenting because we're constantly being 
being brought under the sway of sin. Sin is taking us and taking us directions away from him. And as long as we're in this life, before Jesus comes back, we are going to need to repent. Repent. Because remember, when we sin, our sins are not against the people around us. Yes, they are. They do affect the people around us. But our sins are against God. Just like David said in Psalm 51, after he'd committed adultery, after he'd had Uriah murdered, he says, my sins are against you and you alone, Lord. I've done evil in your sight. So as believers, all of life is repentance. Now when we hear that, our minds go to the big sins, like David's. We say, oh yeah, murderers and, and rapists and robbers and all these other, these other people are so bad. Well, one of my favorite phrases from a movie, uttered by Tom Cruise, he says, relax, it's way worse than you think it is. <laughs> and see, that's the thing. We come at it and we look at sins and we're looking at all these horizontal sins. But in all actuality, the sin that is the worst are the vertical ones. Any sin that is against our God, any sin that says, God, I got this, you don't, is an offense to an almighty God. Why? Why is that such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that we're offending God with our sins when we try to save ourselves, when we try to do it ourselves? Why is that an offense? Why is that so much greater than the things I do to my fellow humans? Well, I'll use an example that I used in youth group last week. If I threaten to kill somebody, I might get some, some, tr some trouble, a little bit. If I threaten to kill an elected official here in Oregon, it's a misdemeanor, so I could serve 30 days in jail. If I even pretend that I'm going to go kill the president, I get at minimum a year in jail. If I try to kill the king, if I say I'm going to kill the king, my head's going to get cut off. What's the difference? It's a station and authority thing. And no matter how great the greatest king or queen on the planet is, no king or queen has run the entire planet. Our God does. Not only does he run the entire planet, he runs the entire solar system, the entire galaxy, and all the infinite number of universes throughout. Not only that, but he made every single one of them. His name is stamped on each of us, just like Woody in Toy Story, where it says Andy on the bottom. Each of us belongs to God. We are his. And so when we go, I don't believe you can save me, I'm going to do it myself. Whether with our mouth or with how we live, it's an offense that is unforgivable apart from Christ. This is why repentance is key. So many times we just kind of take the things we do and we say, well, if I just stopped doing this sin, I'd be okay. And we try to effort it out, and we do. Many of us are good at that. Many of you have had things in your life that you're like, oh, this is bad, this is sin. I got convicted at a sermon, I'm done. I'm not going to do it. And that's great. You're not going to harm people around you. But Jesus always goes deeper, doesn't he? He goes to the heart. That's why the Pharisees were so often his target. was because their hearts were in the wrong place. Matthew 15, 9 says, all sin comes out of the heart. This is not about outward change. It's about inward transformation. See, we can't make ourselves into Christ-adoring people. We cannot muster enough strength, willpower, or wisdom. The miracle of repentance is done by God and God alone. We need that miracle over and over and over again. So where do we see this? Well, it says, so walk in him. This is a continual thing. So if our original time 
with God is that we come to the point where we say, I can't do it. Help me. He then says, take your next step, and it should look like that. Lord, help me. Take the next step. Lord, help me. Take the next step. Lord, help me. Right? We like to think that we're like the little toddling two-year-old, right? Where it's like, you know, you've, you've seen them. They go and they're holding on to the next thing, right? And then eventually they let go and we're getting our cameras out and trying to take video of it. They're walking. Oh, my goodness. Then they're falling. Oh, okay. Right? We see that. And we think, oh, if, if only we could get more mature, we don't need any help with the walking. We'll just do it our own way. That's wrong. We are never ever going to be in a place where we can walk on our own without asking the Lord for help. He is our power. He's our strength. The Holy Spirit must indwell us more and more so we can walk the life that we're supposed to walk. Paul says the way to do this, he says four things. He says we're to be rooted in Him. We're to be built up in Him. To be established in the faith and then abounding in thanksgiving. We are never to outgrow the gospel because these four things are the foundation of the gospel. We are in these things. So what does this mean? Rooted. What are we to be rooted in? Not in a religion, not in a system, not in a church, not in alterations to our life, but we're to be rooted in Christ. Just a moment ago, Paul had said, he, you've confessed him as Lord. You, you've said he's Lord. He's saying, put your roots down into the Lord. This reminds me of a psalm that um, many people have memorized. I know my father-in-law has memorized it. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We are to be rooted in Christ. Why? Christ is God's revealed word on earth. He is God's word in the flesh. And we are to find our roots in him. The deepest roots ever recorded by mankind was a tree in southern Africa. It went down 250 feet. And the only reason they discovered it was because they were drilling a well next to it and they ran into that tree's roots. Not only that, but roots have been known to break apart solid rock. We've seen this here, right? You guys see old trees that have split sidewalks, have split, it, split concrete in half. Roots are powerful. And those are just plant roots. And those are just plant roots. Imagine if we put our roots in something more secure, say, the second member of the Trinity. Think about what that would look like. Jeremiah thought about it, and he put it in Jeremiah 17. This is what he says. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. See this rootedness? Look at what you get. The rootedness goes down, and there's no fear, and there's no anxiety because of the roots being in the water. Now, what is that water? Well, John 7 tells us, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them become like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Christ is our water. It's the roots going down into him, and it's life-giving. Think about these promises here about being rooted, right? We, we, we take a seed and you put it, if you were to see a cross-section, and you can look them up on Google, but the seed goes in the ground and a little teeny shoot comes out. That's the start. But that's not rooted. That seed can be picked up easily. This is not talking about the little sprout. This is talking about the waves of tendrils that just work their way deeper and deeper and deeper. This is what the root is supposed to look like. And look at the fruit. No fear, no anxiety. Man, if you could bottle up a pill that got rid of fear and anxiety, you would be a quadrillionaire in our world right now. And Jesus is saying, I'm the solution to that. Put your roots in me, and I will give you that. Christ is the one who saves. He's the one that's still saving us now. See, the thing is, Jesus wasn't plan B. It wasn't like God went, oh, shoot, thanks, Adam and Eve. Got to come up with a new plan. It's not the way it works. From the start, he said, this is the way it's going to be. He knew that they were going to fall, and he said, it's worth it. I can't wait to share my son with them. I can't wait to share my love with him. Look how great a heavenly father we have. And when we see this rightly, we don't move past this. We don't go, oh, yeah, gospel, yeah. I, I read that book. Move on. No, it's oh, more about it. Can I learn more? Our roots have to go down. They have to go deep. Ephesians 3 has a similar passage to this Colossians passage. I want to read it to you because I, I think there's a key point in the middle that we can add. 3.16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth, length, height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you might be filled with the fullness of God see that language there in verse 17 that you may be filled he dwells in you your hearts will be full of him this is not transactional it's not that we went okay God uh, give me my ticket so I can get out of hell free no, this is a relationship. Christ comes and makes residence in us. This is called the union with Christ. We need to become one with Christ. And then from there, everything goes. This is our roots being sunk deep. So we got the roots. Then we have this phrase where it says to be built up. Paul mixes his metaphors here, right? He's not going to get a good grade in his English class, okay? He's mixing his metaphors going back and forth. He says, you got to be like a tree, now you got to be like a building. So why is he doing this? I think what he's doing here is he wants to teach us two separate things. The tree is showing us life and strength, nourishment from the roots. The building is to show us solid and unshakable, to build it up. There's a reason why the pyramids still exist. They were built very, very well. They've weathered. And what, Christ, what Paul's saying about Christ is he's building us up, but he's not just building us up like a building. He's building us up with life. So God is our gardener. God is our architect. He's building us into something new. 
I mean, think about this for a second. Think about if God was to make humans and he said, I'm going to send you out and I want you to do nothing to let anybody know you're a Christian except for go to church on Sunday and then sometimes tithe 10%. But otherwise, just keep it to yourself. How is anyone ever going to hear the good news? How's anyone ever going to hear? How is anyone going to ever know what Christ is like if his people look just like everybody else when they're outside of the church? See, he sends his spirit to live in us, to then produce fruit, so that when we're out and about, the gospel is not at home on the shelf. The gospel is on display. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power that got me saved with Christ. What does it say? It says, they will see your good deeds and what? Glorify your Father. Let me show you. Don't take my word for it. 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 5. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The gospel is what gives us the life that then produces the fruit that then shows off the gospel to the people we encounter. But get this. Yes, he's your architect. And that analogy breaks down right there. Because you go, well, the architect just draws the plans and then the construction people do the work. The foreman does the instruction of the construction workers. Guys, God is the architect. God's the foreman. God's the construction workers. All we are are the raw materials that he's building stuff out of. That's all we bring. And that's the way he has made us. Because remember, just like at the very beginning, you didn't go, you know what, I'm pretty good. I think I need to be saved. I just did it. You didn't save yourself. So then as we walk in that picture of not saving yourself, as we move forward, you need to remember, I can't do it. I need the Lord's help through all of this. Every single step. And then finally he says, established. This is his last firmness and solidity. He's saying you need to be firmly established. When our roots go deep and our building goes up and strong, it makes us so that the culture, the world, cannot push us around. The world cannot knock us down, cannot uproot us. When we grow in our walk with the Lord, when we begin showing fruit, this does not make God's grace effective. It makes it evident. Right? Now, I know it's kind of opposite of what we think. You know, when you're driving around and you see in these different trees sprouting up and you see trees with fruit on it and you're like, oh, look at that. You don't go, I bet you those roots are really good. I bet you they went down really deep because that tree's really high. We don't think that way, but that's, not, that's what Paul wants us to understand with our walks with the Lord. If we look around us and we see fellow believers who are showing that fruit, it's not meant for us to go, wow, you know, you're really good at that fruit. It's meant for us to go, God in heaven, thank you for their roots in you. And then this takes us to the last point that Paul's making. He says, we are to be abounding with gratitude or abounding with thankfulness. This word abounding is another word picture. It means a river that is overflowing its banks. And so what Paul is saying here is when we really get that God saved us at the beginning and God is what keeps us saved all the way through, we can't help but thank him. 
And oh, thank God, does not become an exclamation that we just throw out there. It is literal. It's what we believe because everything we have is a gift from God. When we get that, when we get it, it leads to thankfulness, which then leads us into deeper with him and then more thankfulness and so on. You know, when we look at the disciples, right, they had sat with Jesus for three years, and we know they didn't get it. Jesus died, they kind of scattered, then Jesus is resurrected. They still sat with Jesus for 40 days, right, and got all this training. But even then, after that was done, what did they do? Some of them just kind of sat around. Jesus said, wait, I'm going to send you a helper. And then the helper shows up. And is there a small change in the disciples at that point? No, it is a drastic change. Peter, who's scared of a little girl who says, aren't you with Jesus? And he cowers before her, is now standing before the rulers of his nation and saying, the Christ you just killed right here, you just killed him a few days ago, right here on this spot, that's who I'm proclaiming to you. These guys were changed. So much so that in Acts 17, it says, these men have turned the world upside down. And when we see these stories, I don't know about you guys, but I feel a lot more like the disciples. I probably am more like the disciples during Jesus' his first, reign, first time he was there. Not even at the second part where they were a little bit more courageous, but definitely not the ones to stand up before rulers and say, I'm going to preach Jesus, do what you may to me. I don't care if you kill me. And I'll, we find ourselves there, don't we? So this leads to our final question, and it's a short one. Why don't I believe like I should? What do I do about the fact that I look a lot more like the cowering disciples than like the ones who are out changing the world and turning it upside down for Christ? Well, Peter, ironically, gives us an answer. 2 Peter 1, verse 9. Peter has just listed a bunch of qualities that match somewhat with the fruit of spirit. And he, fruit of the Spirit, and then he says these words. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. See, Peter doesn't go, oh, you were never a believer. You didn't, you didn't get it. You're, you're a dummy. He doesn't do that. He says, you knew it back then, but you've forgotten it today. You're not living it today. And so Peter's, Peter's prognosis is right. And what we have is we have an amnesia problem. We are forgetting that the gospel is not just where we start, but the gospel is where we stay. So we need to know the gospel, and then we need to rehearse it daily. You're doing it right now. This is what we do with our worship gathering. We come together and we rehearse the gospel with each other. The gospel must shape our lives. We cannot do Christianity without the gospel. It's what empowers us. It controls our way of thinking. It controls the way of seeing the world. It controls every single aspect. How do we do this? Well, we preach it to ourselves. This is what we do. This is why time in the Bible is so important. Not only that, but we preach it to each other. That's why gathering is important. That's why this worship gathering is important. That's why life groups are important. That's why Bible studies are important. We must do this with each other. doesn't mean you have to get up here on the stage and take a turn preaching. No, what it means is the gospel is always on our lips in everything we do. So what do we preach to ourselves? Well, God made us. We have value. 
We messed it up because we sin and deserve wrath. But God values us so much more that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. And now sin does not run me. The world does not run me. I am outside of that. And I am being saved. One author wrote this. Hearing the word of the cross and preaching it to ourselves is the central strategy in the fight for joy. Nothing works without preaching this to ourselves. Here's where we start, here's where we stay, and here's where we finish well. We never outgrow the gospel. This idea that we are like that toddler who no longer needs help walking is wrong. It's a sin thinking that we can ever get past the gospel. Now we may not, we may not get that in our minds, but let me ask you this. How's your church attendance? When you come to church, is it dry? How's your Bible study time? Is it a check off of a list? Is it a, oh, I read my five minutes. How are your friendships? Are they unsatisfying? How's your worship experience? Are the songs flat for you? Because we sing about the gospel. We read about the gospel. We share with each other the gospel. This entire gathering is about the gospel. And we miss it because we forget the gospel. We forget the fact that we are redeemed and that we are to here to celebrate. And that's what we need to do. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel. We need the gospel. Our little booklet that we're, we're going through, there's, a, there's some of them out there on the table if you didn't grab one last week. It's kind of our understanding of how the gospel plays out in life. It says the gospel's like a flywheel. Kyle, if you want to put that up there. The gospel's like a flywheel. And you guys, some of you have seen this. A few, few years ago when Pastor Scott was here, when we were adopting Gladstone, he put this up on the board. A flywheel is like a merry-go-round. And the faster it goes, the more it spins things off. Okay? Let's go to the next one, Kyle. And this is what comes from the gospel. There's probably a lot more that we could put out there. But the idea here is that the more the gospel presses home in this church gathering, in this body, in each and every one of us, these are the things that spin out. If you will, the tree and the roots go into the gospel and the fruit are these things. We produce community. We produce community across age, we, gender, amount of money, all the skin colors in the world, communities there, mission. We can't help but tell others about it. Service. We can't wait to outdo one another in doing good. And then finally, personal change. So these are what we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks. Each week we're going to talk about a different one. And each of these are things that are all from the gospel. You know, if you look at it and you say, okay, let, let's talk about my, my, my quiet time, Pastor John. You just mentioned that a second ago. And, oh, man, I open the Bible every morning and it's just dead to me. I don't get it. Remember where you started and then walk that way. So instead of opening up the Bible and going, all right, I'm going to get something out of this, you stop and you go, Lord, I'm not going to get anything out of this if you don't meet me here right now. And this is hard to do, guys, because you know what? Every single thing in the world is pushing on you. I got to get here. I got to get this. I got to do that. Oh, man, look at the time. Oh, I got to go. Doesn't have to be in the morning. Doesn't have to be at lunch. Just do it sometime during the day. Take some time with the Lord and say, Lord, even if it's three words, 
I mean, some of you in here, and I've heard your stories, some of you have sat down to do devotions and you've gotten like one or two words in and the Lord talks to you for 20 minutes. That's awesome. Others of you, you're reading for a while trying to figure out what the Lord's got for you. Ask him for help. And if he's quiet that day, guess what? He didn't have anything for you specifically. Be watching for what he brings to you later. Sit and ask the Lord for help. Our worship gatherings, another thing we do, we gather together corporately. We are here to remind each other of the gospel. The good news is that Jesus died for our sins and our sins no longer run us. We are to remind each other of that. We do that in the songs that are chosen. We do that in the way we talk. We do that in the literature we give you. We do that in the gatherings that we have getting together. We break down all of the societal barriers in this gathering. And then lastly, the attitude. We are to live lives of gratitude. That abounding, that overflowing. We're not living gratitude because we're alive. That is a good thing, though. We're not living with gratitude because we were born in America. We're not living in gratitude because the Lord has provided, but because we are saved. And I want to finish with this quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor, served as a pastor after being a doctor for many years. His daughter who absolutely adored him, was asked, why was your dad's ministry so powerful? And she said, that's easy. And listen to these words. He never recovered from the fact that God saved him. See, this is where we are to be. God saving us is so amazing that we don't have time to thank him for all of his ancillary gifts because we're still in the process of thanking him for what he's done in saving us. This is where we need to get to, and we cannot effort it out. We cannot do it in our own strength. We do it by returning to the fact, oh, dear God, you saved me? You saved me? Really? Have you seen all that I've done? Really? And never, ever getting over that. That's what it means to live as a gospel-believing Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this incredible gospel. Thank you that we get all the benefits, Lord, and you get all of our garbage. So, Lord, help us to turn that back to you and praise you and make you look as good as you are. I pray, Lord, that we would never get over the fact that you saved us. Never get over the fact that your son came and was destroyed in our place. Help it to impact our lives. Help us to walk in that. Help us, Lord, we're going to have a time this week where, where, Lord, each of us is going to struggle with this. We're going to try to serve and follow you in our own strength. It's going to happen. So, Lord, I pray right now that you would give us your spirit at that moment, whatever and whenever it may be. Lord, give us an extra dose of your spirit. Bring the words from these passages to mind and remind us to cry out to you for help. Lord, you're a good God. You hear us, and you can't wait to give it to us. I look forward to what you're going to do, Lord, in your name. Amen.